1: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We are doing a rewind episode this week. We are working on another Acker Beacon Journal crossover, continuing our unresolved series with them. But first, I want to thank Lisa G for her PayPal donation. Thank you so much for your generous donation to our podcast. If you would like to help us out, there are so many ways you can do it. You can go to patreon.com ohiomysteries, Or you could donate to our PayPal and Venmo, which are both at Ohio Mysteries. Thank you for your support, as it allows us to continue doing what we love and helping us pay the expenses. Now, if you would like a shout out, please consider donating. Now, as for our Rewind episode, we are going all the way back to episode 56, The Hazing of Stuart Pearson at Kenyon College. I know you will enjoy this episode, so sit back, let's throw another log on the fire, campers, and let's take a trip. Back to October 28th, 1905. But right now... Let's throw another log on the fire campers. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everyone. That was a. You got all of that out without taking a breath. I did. You're getting really good at I'm that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a different kind of story for you tonight. This one is a mysterious death that happened during a fraternity initiation when a pledge was decapitated by a train. What kind of? Uh, that's yeah. Well, the, I mean, the question remains: was it murder or just a tragic accident? The one thing we know for sure is that the death of 18-year-old Stuart Lathrop Pearson at Kenyon College, way back in 1905, was one of the first cases to bring nationwide attention to the ritual of hazing. And it had such a horror movie quality to it, the case was debated all over the world. The event almost ended Kenyon College, which was founded in 1824, making it Ohio's oldest private college. It's located in the village of Gambier in Knox County. If Ohio were a dartboard, Kenyon College would be pretty close to the bullseye. Let me read you something from the Kenyon Alumni Bulletin, who put this tragedy into an interesting perspective a few years ago. I'm reading verbatim here. In the litany of Kenyon's mortal tragedies, none, it may be argued, assailed the college as did Pearson's mysterious death, and none may have posed a greater threat to the institution. The story, made to order for the sensationalist press of the day, attracted widespread scrutiny even as the telling details were fogged in controversy. The death and its circumstances combined for a public relations melee on an international stage. The players included aggressive Knox County officials and the stalwart college president William F. Pierce, locked in a public feud. In the wings was the specter of hazing. So when I say Kenyon was almost ended, that's not hyperbole. In 1905, the college had set a record enrollment of 148 students. Stewart's death caused a chill that would have enrollment plummeting to below 100 before it finally began to recover a decade later. But that's the end of the story. Let's go back to the beginning. Stuart Pearson. He was from Cincinnati, a slight, baby-faced, quiet young man, the middle child of three sons. His father, Newbold Pearson, said he had trouble making friends. In other words, Stuart was very unlike his father, a wealthy, decisive, outgoing businessman who had found success in the lumber industry. But Newbold hoped college would bring Stuart out of his shell. He arranged for Stewart to attend his alma mater, Kenyon College, and pledged to the fraternity that Newbold was still active in, Delta Kappa Epsilon. They called themselves the Deeks for short. Newbold was confident Stewart would make friends there. In the fraternity world, initiation is a very big deal. Newbold Pearson even took a train to be with his son and help with the event. ...arriving on October 28, 1905. It may be relevant that Newbold's train arrived severely late, ...pulling into the depot around 6.30 that morning. Stewart had stayed up all night waiting so he could greet his father, ...then stayed up all the next day for his father's visit... ...and preparations for the evening's activities. I'm bringing this up because Newbold would later argue that a lack of sleep... ...played a role in his son's death. Just before 9 p.m. that evening, Stewart left his room in Old Kenyon, that's the name of the residence hall, and bid his father farewell, saying, good night, Pops, I will see you after a while. His father then went to join other fraternity alumni at the Deeks Lodge, about a mile away, where they were preparing other initiation activities. Zach Taylor, the Deek chair of the initiation committee, He passed out instructions to the pledges that night. Stewart's assignment was to walk to the train trestle, about a 10-minute hike through a wooded area. He was told to wait there in isolation until a committee of fraternity brothers came to collect him. Stewart carried with him a shallow basket, perhaps five inches tall, with contents that were required for his initiation. Stewart and his father had gone shopping earlier that day to purchase the items, which included a pack of cigarettes, a bottle of chloroform, Whoa. fig cakes for a snack, safety pins, and a razor. There was also a length of rope provided by the Deke fraternity, and everything was covered by a piece of cloth. Other fraternity pledges were sent to other locations. Meanwhile, back at the Deke Lodge, three member retrieval committees were being formed to go collect the pledges after they had been at their assigned locations for a time and lead them blindfolded and at the end of a rope back to the ceremony at the lodge. Newbold had the opportunity to be on the team sent to collect his own son, but he declined. He wanted his son to interact with other classmates and alumni. So when volunteers were requested to go get Stewart, a student named York, who was Stewart's roommate, and two adult alumni stepped up. The men were Mr. Sham, organist and a seminary student, and Mr. Brown, a Zanesville businessman and a father of two. Newbold, meanwhile, volunteered to be part of another Pledge's recovery team. York, Sham, and Brown walked a mile or so from the lodge to the entrance of the train bridge, but they didn't see Stuart at first. What they saw was the basket on the ground, undisturbed, between the rails— ominous in its presence without its owner. The group called Stewart's name, but he didn't answer. They wondered if he was confused about the instructions and had walked across the bridge to the other side. They followed the tracks, first finding a part of a torn coat and then seeing a bundle in the distance. One of the men would tell the others he thought a cow had been hit by the train, Another thought they had spotted a mannequin. Halloween, after all, was just three days away. But when they reached the bundle, they couldn't deny their eyes. They recognized Stewart's clothes on the mangled form. Just then, the sound of a train was approaching. The men grabbed the still, warm body and hurried to pull him toward the abutment, reaching it just before a freight train barreled through. In the distance the men heard the campus clock strike 10 p.m. They lit a match to confirm the trained victim's identity. That's when they saw that Stewart's head was missing. Two of the men stayed with the body while a third ran for the home of Kenyon College President William Pierce, the 37-year-old administrator who had been at the college's helm for nine years. From here, things happened very quickly and very, well, strangely. First, President Pierce summoned not the police and not the coroner, but a local physician. Dr. Irvin Workman arrived, and Pierce sent him to the bridge where the body was still guarded by two fraternity members. Dr. Workman went to the scene of the accident. He collected the basket Stuart had been carrying, which was standing upright, covered with its cloth, appearing to be undisturbed. He also arranged for a wagon to take the body to President Pierce's house. And then came the unenviable task of sending for Stewart's father. Newbold was still at the lodge, where all the pledges had been returned and were waiting for Stewart. He was taken to Pearson's house, where the president broke the news that his son had been killed in a train accident. It would be determined later that Pearson was struck by an unscheduled train with the Cleveland, Akron, and Columbus Railroad at 9:41 p.m. That's when his watch had stopped. Also, the crew of the train that hit him had no idea it had even happened. Engineer Jeff Venata said it wasn't until they reached Mount Vernon, five miles away, which was their maintenance destination, that someone noticed fabric and blood. It's no wonder that this story is shrouded in controversy because every step from here feels like a cover-up. In the early morning hours, Newbold Pearson arranges for a special train to carry his son's body home before dawn even breaks that morning. He dictates a letter for Dr. Workman to write in case the train is stopped and the body is questioned. Then, at 4 a.m., the train with Stewart's remains pulled away, headed for Cincinnati, just six hours after he'd been killed. Again, still no corner, still no police. Zach Taylor, the fraternity member who had handed out the instructions to the pledges, he found a local resident named Ralph McMahon and offered him $3 if he would go clean up the tracks and bridge that morning. He did so, though he would later say that Taylor never paid him the promised fee mcmahon said he found a piece of skull and a piece of jawbone which he put into a box and buried near the site and so the body had been whisked away and now the site had been scrubbed clean before authorities were even called Mm. (laughs) sounding suspicious seems a little
1: suspicious yes
2: now, Dr. Workman, who by all accounts was shaken by the whole ordeal and may have been bullied into not involving officials that night, finally reached out to Coroner Scarborough the next day to let him know what had happened. Scarborough, angry that the law had been ignored and the body released before he had had a chance to see it, booked passage on the very next train to Cincinnati. There, he examined the body. He said a visual review showed marks on Stewart consistent with him having been bound at the wrists and ankles. Scarborough got 33 people to look at the body and confirm the same thing in writing that there were bruises and indentations on Stewart's ankles and wrists. Scarborough concluded that Pearson had been bound to the tracks 20 feet west of the bridge abutment and that he was unable to free himself as the westbound train descended upon him. He said the kinds of bruises he found suggested Stewart had fought aggressively against his bonds. He also said he found 100 microscopic fibers that had been ground into his socks, trouser legs, and shirt sleeves, and that the fibers matched the rope that had been given to the pledges to carry in their baskets. President Pierce was livid at the suggestion that anyone killed Stewart other than Stewart himself. He said he and others at his home the night Stewart's body was brought in saw no signs of restraint, and that they found no rope at the site other than the rope that was unused in the basket Stewart had carried. The fraternity said the point of the rope was to lead Stewart back to the lodge by the waist, never to restrain him and while chloroform was a required ingredient of the basket fraternity members insisted that was a bluff meant to unnerve initiates it was not nor ever would have been used they said newbold pearson himself defended the college and the fraternity he said he believed his son had walked to the trussle alone and fell asleep waiting for the committee to come get him he imagined his son was aroused by the sound of the coming train and groggily stumbled into its path. He made the point that if Stuart had been tied on the tracks, the engineer should have seen him. But if he had stepped onto the tracks at the last second, he might have gone unnoticed. Newbold accused the coroner of, and here's a quote, trying to make a reputation at the expense of my wife's heart and my peace of mind he categorically dismissed the coroner's report on ankle and wrist bruises and rope fibers stuck in the clothing. And thus, county officials were pitted against the college in a never-ending debate about what happened that night. Did Pearson walk to the railroad bridge alone, or was he escorted by fraternity members? If he was escorted, did they tie him to the track? If Stewart wasn't tied... Did he doze off from being sleepy? And what would account for the marks on his wrists and ankles that Scarborough and 33 other people had documented? An inquest and grand jury sought to answer those questions. Among the revelations, the village marshal Frank Dial said he witnessed another pledge that night who was tied up with rope near the fraternity lodge. Like a horse to a hitching post, he said. So apparently, at least one pledge was bound that night. Marshall Dial also said he was with McMahon when McMahon went to clean the accident site. Dial said he thought it was a good idea, guessing people would quickly come to the site to gawk. Now, the train that hit Stewart was called a special, a locomotive and a coal car, but nothing else. I mentioned it was unscheduled, but that's because it was on its way to Mount Vernon for servicing. If someone had tied Stewart to the track as a prank, they would have not expected this train to Uh be coming through. Okay. Yeah. The three-man crew of the locomotive also testified that if someone had been lying between the tracks, it was less likely, not more likely, that the crew would have noticed him. The train often hit wildlife, and it always caused a jolt. They felt nothing traveling through Gambier, suggesting a lesser impact like that of a prone body. Furthermore, they said an inspection of the train the day after hitting Stewart revealed blood and brain matter on the undercarriage of the train, a place it would be if Stewart had been lying on the tracks, right. not a place it would be expected if he was standing when he was hit. That makes sense. And so Newbold Pearson's theory that his son fell asleep, woke to the sound of the train, and groggily walked into its path, fell apart. Nobody thought Stewart would have chosen to fall asleep lying across the tracks. Dr. Workman, who had seen the body while it was still at the tracks, testified that he thought that Stewart had to have been lying across the tracks to account for his injuries. If he had stumbled into the train, he would have been tossed to one side or another. And while he said he did not see evidence of restraint in examining the body, he would not choose sides on whether the body was bound to the tracks or not. The investigation also turned up a pledge from another fraternity, Paul Barber from Zeta Alpha, who said at 7.30 p.m. that night, he was sent to the bridge for his own initiation and told to walk under the trestle and wait until he was fetched. He thought it was treacherous, as it trapped him on the bridge if a fast train came. He was there for an hour and 15 minutes, unbound, until his fraternity brothers came to get him. He said he didn't see Stuart while he was there, but he heard the whistle of the approaching train, the same train that ultimately hit Stuart, as he was being led away, blindfolded with a rope tethered around his waist. It was also learned that the October 28 initiation wasn't the first time Stuart was hazed. A week earlier, he and other pledges were forced to crawl on their hands and knees from the residence hall to the chapel, prodded with sticks. Injuries to his knees required treatment from Dr. Workman. Stewart had even written home about abscesses on his torn knees, requiring lancing three different times. Yeah, his knees were still bandaged when his body was recovered. Other testimony revealed something interesting about the basket Stewart had been carrying that night. Chloroform was one of the required ingredients, and Newbold confirmed that he and his son had picked it up earlier that day. However, the basket found by Dr. Workman on the tracks had no chloroform in it, mm. nor was the bottle ever found. Scarborough was convinced there was a cover-up. The coroner found two witnesses who said it was common knowledge in the community that the fraternity had tied up pledges on the tracks before. And one last bombshell. Stewart's roommate, York...
1: Who was going to go get him, right?
2: Yes, of, he was on okay. the group of three that went to get him. He wrote to his mother about the incident. The contents of the letter were never shared with the public, but reportedly confessed some grisly details of the night's event. What the letter said, we don't know, but it's telling that the mother had turned it over to the state as evidence. County Prosecutor Lot Stillwell, who read the letter, appeared to have heard enough and told the media, I shall proceed at once to bring the guilty person to justice. And he asked for an indictment. But who is the guilty party? This is really interesting. The Knox County Grand Jury met and all 14 members of the Grand Jury took the extraordinary step of saying that they did believe Stewart had been tied to the track, but they refused to indict anyone. They said the prosecution had failed to provide enough evidence to name any specific culprit. Indictment or not... The public had drawn its own conclusions, the overwhelming opinion being that someone had gotten away with murder, and a conspiracy of silence was protecting them. A media storm traveled around the Western world. A newspaper in Paris said the incident exceeds an atrocity the most macabre inventions of Edgar Allan Poe. Newspaper artists were drawing images of a terrified innocent tied to the railroad tracks. The Los Angeles Sunday Times offered a cartoon titled The Evolution of College Hazing and showed a head propelled like a rocket from a locomotive. Wow, this was huge news, man. It was everywhere. Pearson's fraternity brothers were being called barbarians. Some accused the upperclassmen of killing the freshmen just for fun. Editorial boards followed up with commentaries on hazing, and Ohio legislators passed a law aimed at restricting the practice, imposing fines and jail terms for students convicted of hazing and for administrators found guilty of allowing hazing to occur. In college was not dissuaded by this at all and hazing was not banned as a matter of fact the author of an editorial in the school newspaper in 1908 said that while hazing could go too far it was instrumental in instilling a proper sense of respect from incoming students during the inquest president pierce was even asked if he would ban hazing and he said he wouldn't that to do so would be an admission that hazing had been responsible for Stewart's death and that it hadn't. He definitely seemed to be a man with blinders on. In spite of that grand jury testimony about the obvious hazing done to Stewart when he was made to crawl on his knees and then had to be treated by Dr. Workman, Pierce told the grand jury he was confident there had never been an instance of hazing at the college. By the way, there is a great two-part podcast on this case if you want to hear even more about it. It's called Ohio Folklore, and if we leave you tonight wanting more, I don't mind steering you there. They found an incident two weeks after Stewart's death where a student named McGarvey had been found bound and gagged and left unconscious on the floor with a note that said, "'This will do for this time, but if we come again, it will be worse.'" It was believed that McGarvey had been talking to county authorities about the Pearson case, though McGarvey denied knowing who had assaulted him. Ohio Folklore Podcast also learned that years later, a letter was allegedly addressed to President Pierce from a railroad employee who had grown bored the night of October 28th and had gone for a long walk. He said he saw Stuart Pearson being tied to the tracks and possibly by his own father. That idea, some say, would explain why Newbold Pearson rushed his son's body away, continually defended the college and fraternity, and why he never filed a lawsuit in a case that really cried out for a lawsuit. A local historian said the letter was discovered by someone who worked in the Kenyan alumni office, though I will say the existence of that letter has never been confirmed.
1: That was a great one I really enjoyed this one I can't believe I
2: never heard of this one It's such an extraordinary
1: case Me neither I'm glad I've never tried to get into a fraternity Because (laughs) I'm not curling on my knees Who
2: (laughs) knew this was going on in 1905
1: Right Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say
2: Tonight's Armchair Detective, we are welcoming Lisa Steyer from Medina, Ohio. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Paula. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: Well, I'm mother of three and grandmother of two. I work full-time, and of all things, i kind of like a, a true detective
2: Love watching all of those on TV. Aren't we all? Yes. (laughs) Well, I I gave you a list of subjects to choose from for your armchair detective segment, and you picked this one. What was it about this one that you wanted to, to dig your teeth into?
0: Well, for one thing... My daughter actually works in an admissions office of a university. I have a son that pledged a fraternity so I knew a little bit um, of details from you know his experiences pledging.
2: Well there's so much to talk about in this case and I guess the, if I had to ask one question off the top of my head, the one question that comes back to me is what was the father's role in this? Do you Think that he actually played a role in possibly tying his son to that
0: train track i I don't think that he he would have had anything to do with it at all
2: well Um, let's go to your theory let's just jump into your theory tell me what you think
0: happened i think he fell asleep and another thing i've been interested in recently is um i'm interested in health and I'm realizing what a huge role sleep plays in our lives. My understanding is that you can fall into a deep sleep within like 15 or 20 minutes, the, the deepest level of sleep. And, you know, I know I can be a heavy sleeper, so can I really need my sleep? I'm that type of person. So I kind of felt that he just fell asleep, and I think he got into a deep sleep is what I think happened.
2: I've had experiences where sleep came on really quickly, and I could not resist it. I mean, I remember there would be times, even at work or in school, when I thought, I cannot hold my eyes open one more second. I need to sleep for at least five minutes. I have to shut my eyes. So mm-hmm. I could see that happening. If he had been without sleep for a couple of days, and it's dark, and you know he's alone in, in the woods... I could see him definitely, you know, this he was only there, you know, less than an hour, but I could see sleep overcoming him. But I yeah, can't I figure out. out why he would fall asleep with his head laying on the rail. I mean, how do you account for the decapitation? What scenario do you see?
0: I can imagine like maybe leaning your head up on on the you know, outside of the tracks, where the the ground, you know, is at an angle, propping yourself up because you know, it would have been dark, you know, um you know, no chairs, nothing to sit on or anything. So, you know, you're you're either gonna lay on the ground or sit on the ground and I can imagine that he propped himself up like kind of like a chair. And the part that's kind of confusing is did the train then sweep his body up onto the tracks? You know, a lot of him you know, he was intact, so, right. like, a lot of his clothes and everything, some of them came off, but, you know, I read that he had on boots, and so that's one of the things that kind of throws a loop, like, how would you have seen rope marks, uh, um, ankles that he had had boots on? How could there have been no rope left at all? Because not everything was disintegrated the only thing that sort of was disintegrated was his head. The
2: the fraternity did pay somebody, or at least say they would pay somebody and bring nicked on that deal, but talked somebody into going out and cleaning the site at dawn before police arrived. They went out and actually cleaned the site up. Well, and that seems I, really suspicious behavior to me.
0: I agree. Except that what I read, the the Uh, testimony in the inquest stated that it was the, the village marshal and a town resident that cleaned the tracks and that they said that they thought it was heartless because people were starting to gather and they thought it was heartless not to clean it up what was there you know like
2: I guess, you know, it's 1905, it's hard to get in the heads of somebody back then. I mean, today, that would just be unconscionable. I mean, the idea would be, no, you have to preserve this, you know, crime scene. Surely they knew something about preserving crime scenes in 1905, but maybe we give them more credit than than they deserve for that
0: era. Well, I I thought to myself, well, the first thing I'd be thinking if I was the dad would be to, I want to get home. And the next thing, thinking to yourself that back then they, you know, didn't have cars, it would have been a horse and carriage and, or by train. And so I can see how he was like, I want to get on the next train back home and, and take, you know, take his son with him. And then not wanting his wife to hear it elsewhere. I can understand all of that
2: yeah you know the father the father whisking his son away on that train before the sun even rose I, I am absolutely the opposite. I cannot even imagine functioning at a high enough level to arrange for somebody to come to the site where i 've just collected my headless son instruct them how to write up a paper that will explain what happened to him so that I can get him on a train, arrange for the private train, because there's no other train coming through. They had to make calls and arrange for that train to come and get it, and then get him on the train, take him away before daybreak, and do it before any police or any coroner has the opportunity to weigh in on anything that's happened. Uh, that is so suspicious to me. I, There's no way I would be functioning. I would still be in such stunned shock. I, I wouldn't even be at the morning stage. I think I would just still be completely stunned at what had just happened to my kid that I can't imagine being able to do all of that very technical organization you know to get my kid's body away before the police arrive.
0: Well, I was thinking that you'd want the first thing you'd want to do is talk to your wife. So, so is he going to call by phone? You know, that's what I was thinking. I was in, would you want to hang around? Would you sleep that night? I, I mean, I would be like, you know, you are in shock, I'm sure, but I think you want to go home. And that would be my first thought. I need to get home. Okay. And, and then I'm thinking, well, you, you don't want to leave without your child.
2: So if you're going to go home so that you can tell your wife, get your son, take your son with you.
0: I guess most people would probably get on the phone, but we're so used to using the phone. Yeah,
2: 1905. I'm not even sure. What would you do? I, I guess you could send a wire.
0: Right, um, right, yeah, and 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 it would have been like she might have been in bed by the time he'd been sending the wire,
2: you know. Right, and do you so, want your wife not to hear it from you? What? Yeah, right. that's yeah. what
0: I'm thinking. I'm thinking that it would make the most sense. I got to get home. Now I don't know why every everybody, all of these people would be so dead set on trying to protect the Deeks. I, I don't get that part. Why? it would be that important. I think that I would be more concerned about telling the truth.
2: I don't know that they were protecting the fraternity as much as they were protecting the college because you've got a really small college. There were 148 students there. It was a private school. All 148 of those kids probably came from wealthy and influential families. So even though you have a small number, you have a very big impact on a community.
0: But my last point that I want to make that I came up with and I thought might be pretty good explanation for supporting my theory, Okay. and that is that Paul Barber was at those same railroad tracks that same night right before he was there. So wouldn't he have heard some talking, some laughing, some... Anything, anything at all to, that would indicate that somebody was being tied down. But the other point, and somebody else brought this up to me when I was telling her my theories and running it past her. She said, "Wouldn't she? Wouldn't he have heard him like maybe screaming, or you know, if he were tied down and trying to get untied or something before getting hit by the train?"
2: that's a good point because there was nothing to suggest he was gagged so if he was tied down but awake wouldn't he have been screaming that's a good point
0: that's right, and so he could hear the, the the whistle of the train coming, so he could at least hear that.
2: I did find it interesting that Paul Barber said he was not himself tied to the train. So, if it was a big tradition to take the pledges to the trestle and tie them there, if he's telling the truth and not just trying to protect fraternities in general, he was not—he himself was not tied. So, that, that was interesting. Right. The other thing that just seems really weird to me is what kind of hazing is this? Why would you have this guy go and collect all of these items for a basket, tell him to walk through the woods and stand at the train for 40 minutes, and then we'll pick you up and we'll take you to the pledging party? I'm not clear what the intent of that ritual was unless there was some more element to it that
0: they're not telling us what do you think well i thought the chloroform in the basket was really interesting because my thought would have been was he were they going to use it to make them pass out but they claimed they were doing it as a bluff to maybe scare them. Right. So what I think that what's supposed to be happening is you were supposed to be, like, scared to death. What the heck are they going to do with all this stuff? And the razor in the basket, and they even had safety pins. I don't know what those might have been used for, but...
2: So the intent wasn't actually to do anything, but to create this psychological terror, you don't know that we're not going to do anything, so you can stand there for an hour and really be fearful of what we're going to come to do. Worries, yeah. Okay. I I can see that, because I'd be terrified if they told me to take all of these things and go stand on the
0: train trestle. I'd be scared. Well, one of the things I did do—I, I know this is sort of strange. I'm I'm an IT person, so I, I, I'm into data and facts and things like that. And yes. I looked up the the online. You can actually get the class registers, so you can actually see the numbers of students. And I wanted to see. I wanted to verify. Did the numbers drop from when this happened? To, and that accurate part of the story. Right. And it is accurate, but the lowest enrollment was like four years later. It dropped below a hundred. But there was also an incident where three students died in a fire, the military academy that was there on campus. Yes. So that maybe, Affected the numbers more so than than this case. I don't
2: know. I did see the one where the the military academy had had that devastating fire and three kids dying. I mean, that was a very big deal. So that one two punch for that community definitely could have made the enrollment drop even further than this one hazing case might have done alone the other thing I was really impressed by with this case was how widespread this story went. I mean, I found stories in European newspapers and editorials in in European newspapers. Everybody was talking about this case. It was huge.
0: I was shocked even that Religious, you know, like the, the pastors of churches would would comment on it, and they were all oh, they they didn't hold back. They were the the one quote was. had something to do with, I won't send any of my sons to college with football or hazing. Or hazing. (laughs) And I thought, how did football get thrown in there? (laughs) I talked to a couple of people. I, I actually called three people and talked to them based on this story. Their names came up in some of these stories. And the one person did say to me that they felt that he was tied down. And I was shocked that they thought that. And they felt that President Pierce would go to the lengths of trying to cover something like this up.
2: How interesting that you called some people. So these were people that you saw in various stories?
0: Yes. And then I also contacted, uh, first thing he says to me was, you know, I wasn't alive then. (laughs) (laughs) left it was uh Robert Heasley. he was a the advisor for the fraternity for years oh. um, I don't know I think he still is actually affiliated with it I'm not sure to what role he plays. He's, eight, like, 80 in his 80s now, 81, 82, something okay. like that. Cause I, so you know,
2: he was almost nine, alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so closer than most of us. Yes. And so he's the one who, you know, pointed out to me that, like, they wouldn't have had electricity. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm not thinking about this. And then, you know, he pointed out there would have been maybe, you know, one phone for the old town or, or, you know, for the university. And and Dr. Pierce might have had a, a phone. I'm not sure, based on what I read, whether he did or didn't, I wasn't thinking about those things. And it helped change some of my thoughts because, you know... If I couldn't pick up the phone and call my wife, you know that's when I was thinking about uh, Stuart's dad. That yeah, I would have wanted to just go home. I, I, that would have been my first thought, like okay. to be upset. But anyway, he's uh, Robert Heasley was interesting to talk to because he he felt that it was just an accident, really got blown out of proportion. Helped me think think of it differently than I was at first. You know, some of the details were. A little bit different to me that after talking to him, so that was interesting.
2: Well, you brought up a good point. I mean, it, you really have to understand what the time period was like to get a better understanding of how people might have reacted the way they did. So, thanks for pointing that out. That's a very good point,
0: yeah. And even like the knees that that would have been bad if you think about it from that perspective. How long did they make him crawl?
2: The wounds on his knees, yeah. Yeah. And that they were bad enough that he had to go back to the doctor a second time, so.
0: Right, and so I think to myself, well, I could see why the president of the university would try to maybe keep the coroner from finding that out you know not realizing what he
2: was going (laughs) to cause sure sure I mean the coroner gets in there and and sees this kid's been decapitated and then find out that he's been abused a couple weeks before this it could definitely take his understanding of what had happened to a whole different level
0: right right I think he was trying to protect that not realizing he was going to be accused of like (laughs) like um, causing his death
2: Lisa, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I think you've given us a lot to think
0: about. Well, thank you. I've
1: had a lot of fun. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.